The NBA season is heating up and Kevin O'Connor and Chris Vernon have got you covered on The Mismatch. They discuss all the news, the trends, and transactions happening around the league. They also offer their on-court analysis and occasionally get into heated debates. Check out The Mismatch on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's New York, New York, presented by FanDuel. The MLB season is in full swing and you can step up to the plate with FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Parlay Hub, filtered by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays all on one page. Plus, bet the live same-game parlays for every MLB game and track your game and bets live with box scores and play-by-play. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of Major League Baseball. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 100 Gambler or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. Coming up on New York, New York, it's a late night. This is bringing back all sorts of crazy vibes. A tough loss for the Knicks in overtime out in La La Land. The Yankees, hopefully, starting to slay the demons of Tropicana Field and the Tampa Bay Rays. What a performance by Jordan Montgomery and a little bit more Mazika magic for the New York Mets. We got listener voicemails. We got Todd Zeal. We got my good buddy James Alberino from Spread Investor. All that more, New York, New York, presented by our friends over at FanDuel Sportsbook. It's coming up next. Welcome in to episode 17, a late night edition of New York, New York. At least for me, this is giving me all sorts of nostalgia. It's bringing back all sorts of vibes because we are kicking off New York, New York here on the East Coast at 10 after 1 on now a Wednesday morning. But that's how we roll on this show. When it's a late night Nick game, what, what do you think? I'm Betty Bye? What do you think? I'm tucked in in the Donald Duck pajamas? No, I have the Donald Duck pajamas rocking, and I'm staying up late, watching a little baseball throughout the evening, and then late night basketball, which ends up being a heartbreaking loss for the New York Knickerbockers. And I thought that we were going to be able to kick off this podcast. I don't know. I might have even cracked open the bottle of Casamigos tequila to celebrate their first playoff appearance in eight years. Because listen, the Knicks, in trying to get you through year after year after year, in many cases, requires a whole lot of tequila. But this was a night where you had an old-school defensive grind between the Lakers without LeBron James and the Knickerbockers. And the Knicks are down six in the third quarter. They came storming back in the fourth quarter. Julius Randle was unbelievable. Took a couple of crazy shots, but they ended up falling. It's been that kind of year for Julius. And you really felt like the Knicks were going to pull this game out. 
They were set up in the fourth quarter to pull this game out. Final defensive possession. They don't end up boxing out. Wes Matthews is there. Put back, tie game. You end up going to overtime. And when you're on this sort of lengthy road trip that the Knicks have been on, where you played in Denver, where you took on Memphis, where you took on the Clippers, this has been a well of a road trip, no matter what happened here on Tuesday night. I do believe there were a whole lot of Knicks who completely ran out of gas in this game. You couldn't tell by the effort level. And remember, the Knicks did not have Emmanuel quickly. The Knicks did not have Burks. That clearly hurt them from an outside shooting perspective. I don't think there's any doubt. The legs maybe weren't there in the overtime session. That said, there was still a chance to win in the overtime session because they took it from a five-point Laker lead with about two and a half minutes to play. And I thought, quite frankly, folks, Derrick Rose was going to pull this game out of the fire for the Knicks. He hits a three. He has a terrific charge on Horton Tucker, who, I mean, just absolutely abused the Knicks. We'll get to that in a minute. Leads to the Randall three and then makes another great defensive play. I'm like, here we go. This is going to be the Derrick Rose, Julius Randall, two-man show that's going to propel the Knicks into the postseason. The Lakers, who clearly are playing hard. The Lakers, who want absolutely no part of playing in that plane. To their credit, executed down the stretch. Horton Tucker, I mean, he's going to go on my list. It's one game, and I know in the grand scheme of things, doesn't mean a ton for the Knicks. But, I mean, this dude just made every point on the man and hit a ton of big shots. And hit shots with all sorts of flair and confidence in the process. He had a back-breaking three. And then the final possession of the game for the Knicks was just awful. I mean, what in God's name was that? I mean, they had the ball inside the corner with like five seconds to go. And then it just kept working away from the basket. And R.J. Barrett was basically like, fuck it. I'm going to throw up a half-court heave to try and win the game. And this was a night where R.J. Barrett clearly did not have it. He's had a terrific sophomore year. His three-point shooting is dramatically improved, but this was not a good night for R.J. Barrett. Knicks gave you a ton of effort. They got a spark from Toppin. They got a spark from Neil Aquina in the second quarter. I know some Knicks fans are going to be wondering why Frankie was not on the court in the final possession of regulation. I think that's a fair critique to have. Even though Rose did make some terrific defensive plays, Neil Aquina, and I'm not his biggest fan, and I hated the draft pick. That's when you want him out there if he's going to be a part of a rotation. And he was tonight because the other two guards were not there. In the moment, was I thinking it? No. In hindsight, can I acknowledge it? Yeah. Perfect world, I probably want him out there. Play a little pressure, D. But now the scenario for the Knicks, in case you're wondering over the next couple of days. The Knicks right now are in a three-way tie for that fourth spot in the Eastern Conference. Now, you don't have to worry about the plan. The Knicks are not going to be playing in the play. Boston just lost again to the Miami Heat. Boston looks like a team that is totally caught without Jalen Brown. And for my money, I think there's a good chance Boston gets bounced in that playing series to begin with. So Simmons better enjoy the fact that his Red Sox are in first place only for another day or two. So he better cherish that because... His basketball team is going to be saying sayonara. Good night. Turn out the lights. The party is over. That party is going to be over. 
for the green and white. I love saying that, too. That puts me in better spirits after this game. not going to lie. Better spirits. But on a much more serious note, Atlanta, Miami, and the Knicks are all tied up right now at 38 and 31. The Knicks, over their next two games, three games, Spurs at home, Hornets at home, Celtics at home. Win the next two. That would be my advice. Go and win the next two. Now, the schedule, in case you're wondering, for for Miami and for Atlanta. See, Miami's got tough road here. Miami's got Philadelphia on Thursday. They have Milwaukee on Saturday. But you do have to wonder with these teams how much they're prioritizing seeding. That I do not know. Atlanta. Home against a pesky Wizards team that's played really well down the stretch. Home Magic. Home Rockets. Atlanta, I think, is winning two of their remaining three. I think Atlanta is going to be in that 4-5. The Knicks are going to have to win some games here at home to make sure they're avoiding either Brooklyn or Milwaukee in the first round. But that's kind of where we stand as far as the scenarios are concerned. And I love doing this sort of shit. I mean, if you've listened to my show on FAN, when it comes to playoff scenarios in the NFL and now like breaking down opponents and potential opponents, this, this gets me going. This puts a little extra oomph in my giddy-up. I love going over this sort of shit. Can't get enough. I'm annoyed about this game, but it is going to be a very meaningful final couple of games for the Knickerbockers. Good road trip. Have to be proud. Tough finish here against the Lakers. Now, on a much happier note in New York sports, the New York Yankees finally found a way to do something that has eluded them quite a bit over the last two years. Beat the Tampa Bay Rays. And, you know, somebody tweeted this to me when I woke up on Tuesday morning, and it was regarding the series price for the Yankees and the Rays, which was at minus 160. And I had to do a double take when I saw that series price at minus 160 because I said, hold on a second. Tampa owns the Yankees. The Yankees never win at Tropicana Field. How in God's name is the series price minus 160? And then I thought about it. Cole's pitching on Wednesday. And you figure, all right, the Yankees win the Cole start. They split the other two. That's how you get minus 160. Okay. But to start off this series with the win and the way they drew it up, Aaron Judge, who has been scuffling over the last week, first inning, first pitch, first at bat, boom, home run, setting a tone. Then you get to Yankees starting pitching, which to me has been the biggest factor in their turnaround over these last two and a half weeks. The Yankees, and not just Garrett Cole, up and down the rotation, guys are throwing great. From Kluber to Herman and tonight's starter, or Tuesday night's starter, Jordan Montgomery was fabulous. Fabulous. And I know a lot of teams are struggling. I know a lot of teams are hurting offensively in baseball. The Yankees starters got nothing to apologize for, though. Take the performances and run. Montgomery tonight, six innings of one-run baseball, one walk, strikes out nine. The only mistake he made was the Mike Zanino home run. That's big boys starting pitching. I have always looked at Jordan Montgomery as a guy who could take the next step for this Yankee team. 
pitching to a sub four ERA. Yankees starting pitching. Gotta love what you're seeing. I'll tell you what also was a sight for sore eyes. How about Gary Sanchez getting an opportunity to play? We know he's not catching Cole. We know he's not catching Cooper. They've given him the chance to catch Jordan Montgomery. You got to make the most of those chances. It's an opposite field home run. Gave the Yankees a little bit of breathing room in this game, and you needed that in the bottom half of the ninth inning. Glaber Torres boots the ball. You get a good carom with Oraldis Chapman, who has been Mr. Perfect, basically. Getting a little wild there in that bottom half of the ninth inning. And with Tropicana Field being the house of horrors, you didn't want any nonsense. So runner on first, ball caroms on a wild pitch right back to Gary. Nails the runner at second base. And then Chapman stared down the whole deal. Could do it out to stare down when Tampa beat you in the postseason last year. But with the way Chapman's going, you know what? You can do whatever you want. I don't love it, but you can do whatever you want. And now the goal after the Yankees win the first game of this series, it is simple. No ifs, no ends, no buts. Go win the series. You got one or two chances to do so. The ace is on the mound on Wednesday. Go and finally do something you haven't done in over a year plus. Almost two years. Win a series against the Rays. Voicemail right out of the gate. It's late night. We're cooking. We're rocking. I know some of you are going to be listening to this, having your morning coffee, reading, doing what you people who are of the normal ilk do in the morning. Me, on the other hand, I'm you know going to be sleeping. So when you listen to this at 7 in the morning, God bless. If you listen to late night, you're my kind of guy or gal. Who's on the horn? Yo, yo, JJ. This is Jack. Is Giancarlo Stanton an MVP candidate this year? Feels kind of ridiculous because he can't play defense and he's like not a hot commodity anymore, I guess. But he's he's hitting like it. Give me your thoughts. Love the show. Bye. Appreciate it, Jack. It's too early to tell right now in the middle of May who's an MVP candidate or not. You ask me in the middle of July and we look at Giancarlo Stanton's numbers, we'll have an idea. Offensively speaking, he's been terrific. And I was not exactly the leader of the Giancarlo Stanton fan club. I don't love the fact that he's unable to play the outfield. I don't love the fact that he and Aaron Judge are very similar in many ways, but I got to own the fact that he's been clutch. He's carried the Yankee offense. He's had a ton of big hits for this team. So far, Stanton is earning his contract this year. He's played and he's been productive. Can't knock him for that. Loaded show. Tough one for the Knicks. A great one for the Yankees. You had a little drama and a little fun, a little flair out at City Field with the Mets doing their thing against the Orioles in dramatic come-from-behind fashion in the bottom half of the ninth inning. We'll get to that. Ton more voicemails to get to. We'll welcome in for the first time James Albarino of Spread Investor, who is as good as it gets handicapping the NBA, and he's a diehard Nick guy, so he can't wait to come on the show. Todd Zeal, my buddy from SNY, is going to talk some Met baseball. Can't wait to welcome in Todd. So much more to do. And we're just getting started. To quote Chris Berman, we've only just begun. New York, New York. Come right back. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. 
When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. Let's welcome in good buddy of mine. He's a rock star now on SNY. Had a terrific playing career. I mean, basically played everywhere. And in New York, in these parts, he's known for being a part of those 2000 Subway Series Bobby Valentine Crazy Mets. Our buddy Todd Zeal. What's happening, Todd? JJ, always good to see you, my friend. How are you? Todd, I'm doing well. And you've been doing this broadcasting gig now for a couple of years. Was Friday night? With rats and raccoons and all the craziness surrounding Lindor and Jeff McNeil, the strangest night you and Gary Apple have been on set? Yeah, I got to say, maybe it is. It ranks uh, right at the top. I can't think of anything off the top of my head that was any stranger and more unexpected. And, you know, in my thought, um, more unnecessary than um, than the game that ensued. And um has nothing to do with the fact that I wanted to know what was going on or I cared what they, you know, with a confrontation in the tunnel because boys will be boys. Men are uh, frustrated at times. It's like a bunch of brothers hanging out for 180 days in a row. So there's going to be uh, disagreements. There's going to be, um, you know, some fisticuffs at times. I've seen it plenty of times during my career, but um, more easily not to try to insult the intelligence of the, uh, the media, especially here in New York City. Oh, no doubt. And listen, you were talking about it during the broadcast. I'm screaming it from my living room. Bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. Feel like I'm in that Matthew McConaughey, Kate Hudson movie. But you know what, though, Todd? We've seen winning teams. Guys can go at it. Was there ever an instance for you when you were part of many big league clubhouses where you had two guys, you know, between closed doors, you know, really getting after it, getting at it, maybe throwing a fist or two, like... I don't think it's the end of the world as long as guys and the team as a whole, right, are going to be able to come together. I'd say that if you talk to anybody that has spent some time in the big leagues, whether it be 16 years like myself and a bunch of different teams or just a couple of years, um, they all would tell you that there are some tempers flaring and some incidents that happen behind closed doors on a bus, on a plane, in a locker room. Um, that just is the nature of business. But at the same time, anybody out there that's had a brother or a bunch of brothers and you're in small quarters and traveling together and, you know, in a competitive environment on a day-to-day basis um, and you don't get into any kind of disagreements, I would tell you that you've got, um, you know, your Wally and and the Beaver uh, because, it just, it just doesn't make sense. It is something that always happens. And I can tell you also, baseball guys, because of the fact that you spend so much time together, I think have to have a thick skin. Guys get on each other. Guys rag each other, set each other in, in, in place. And it's a part of what goes on in the, the lure of um, being a part of a team. And that usually stays behind the scenes. Once in a while, it leaks into something that the public can see. And then you have to give some explanation for it. But I don't think anybody would be naive enough to think that guys just get along, uh, you know, like chums 100% of the time for 180 straight days. 
You're watching Francisco Lindor go through this transition, signing a $300 plus million contract. You know, he's the Mark Man now, and he's the poster boy for the Mets for years to come, and he's gotten off to a slow start. This is not new. Carlos Beltran got off to a slow start. I know you're tight with Mike Piazza. You go back to his 1998 season. He got off to a slow start. Todd, for you specifically, you play in a lot of different cities. Was the transition coming from wherever to New York that much more drastic, let's say, from you going to St. Louis to Baltimore or Baltimore to Texas? How much more difficult is that transition coming to New York? I think it could be. I think it definitely is. And especially, look, I think the reason I'm saying for me, especially it wasn't, is I came here after, you know, quite a few years already in the league. I had played in a number of different uh, locations, including uh, Chicago and Los Angeles and Philadelphia. Um, I kind of knew what to expect. I was always, it would hold myself to a high level of accountability. Um, and I welcomed, I had a a very, what I would consider a cush um, comparable, you know, offer to stay in Texas. Um, and I wanted what New York City brought. I wanted um, that accountability and that intensity that comes with playing in New York City because I thought that Mets team um, in watching them in 1999 had a chance to get to the next level. I thought that the Texas Rangers going the other way. And so in, in some ways, I have nobody to blame but myself for any scrutiny I took. But I actually enjoyed that part of New York and still do. I think it's the greatest place to play and to be an athlete in the world because um, there is no room for error. And if you mess up, take accountability. Sit in front of the, the mic and say, you know, I sucked today and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to get better tomorrow. And at least you have, you know, the ability to hold your head up high. I just um, I think that that's the toughest part about New York. It's not that the presses any more scrutinous. It's just that it's more, I think there's more intuitive fans. I think there's a, a greater knowledge um, for the game itself. And so if you don't take accountability, people hold you um, responsible. I think we'll be in agreement on this. At some point, Lindor is going to hit. He's too good a player. Look at the back of the baseball card. But when do you get to a point, Todd, where if you're a New York Mets fan, you're like sounding the alarm. Is it the end of May, Memorial Day weekend? Is it 4th of July weekend? Like, if I'm looking up when and I see Francisco Lindor hitting 205, when should I really be concerned? Probably um, middle to end of May. I mean, I, I got off the slow starts quite often in my career. And if anybody judged me by April and early May, um, you know, it would have been a very different a career for me, but um, you, you didn't know, like you don't like that cold thirty degree temperature. I don't like here that cold York. weather. I don't blame yeah, you, man. I, California no, I warmed up. I warmed up with the uh, with the weather. I usually was better in June, July, and August, and um, and I don't expect anything different from the door. I think one of the things that's interesting right now, though, is baseball um, offense is is down everywhere. I mean, it's not just Lindor that's struggling. It's a lot of other really good hitters across the game, including guys on this Mets team that are struggling. The pitchers have the advantage. I think the deadened ball and the loose and seams have created um, a greater advantage uh, for pitchers. And so I don't think you're going to see the breakout numbers that um, people were expecting to see out of Lindor or anybody else for that matter. Um, and so I think that has to go into the equation, but I do feel like you're going to start seeing better at bats for him, better swings at the ball, better balance at the plate, better pitch selection, all those things that tell you, 
okay, he's getting back to uh, the the hitter that he actually is and is not, you know, got the the weight of the contract on his shoulders every time he walks up to the plate. That lack of offense, and it feels like, Todd, you watch so many of these teams, not just the Yankees, not just the Mets, it feels like it's walk, it's strikeout, it's home run, and, you know, I'm a sucker for a good old-fashioned triple. I'm a good old sucker for, you know, first to third, and, you know, the sort of plays that drew me to baseball. You were around in a time when the home run was really starting to be in vogue. I remember that Maddox uh, Glavin commercial with Chicks Dig the Long Ball. Does the current product and watching it day in and day out, does that annoy you? It does at times. Absolutely. I mention it on occasion and I, um, you know, have to kind of recognize that um, analytics is a big part of this game is taking over and permeating, um, you know, from front offices to uh, dugouts. So um, it's not going away. I I just, uh, there's times that I think the analytics argument um, can be combated with, the ability to try to get a run to win now. And that's the, that's the part of it that I still think can be used in tandem. And what I mean by that is over the course of 162 days and games, uh, you extrapolate out all the, the, the numbers and the statistics and the analytics are going to tell you that you should never give up an out. Don't give up an out, whether it be a bunt or a hitting behind a runner to advance a runner, because at the end of the day, if you swing for home runs, even if you strike out, uh, you're going to end up on the long run, driving in more runs and having more runs scored than if you sacrifice that out. Well, that's great. Over the long run, the bottom line might be bigger in number of runs scored. But when you need one run to win a game on that particular day and you're in the late innings, it doesn't make sense to me. It th- That's where it loses that sense of logic and where I'd love to see small ball take over. And by the way, the teams that strike out less produce more runs and win more ball games. That's been and shown win in the postseason over the last time and win in the way. postseason. They win in the so, playoffs. Um, that, that's something that can't be denied and I think gets missed in some of the analytics conversation. Okay, you played against the great Pedro Martinez. To me, the most dominant year I've ever seen from a starting pitcher was 1999. Yet so many guys all roided up. And in that All-Star game, Todd, he's making the likes of McGuire and Sosa just look flat out silly. But now I watch DeGrom every fifth day, and it's kind of in the ballpark, dude. I think it's in the conversation. Pedro's the best I've ever seen, but I think if I'm putting together a top five list, for me, Todd, it's going from like 1995 on, so, you know, I can't put Koufax and Gibson there. DeGrom in a top five category, though. I mean, these last three or four years, he's been as good as anybody. Yeah, absolutely. For the last 20 years, at least where I've been, you know, either, either involved in the game having to stand up there against pitchers or watching really closely, uh, no question to me. Yeah, I mean, and he does things, not only is his stuff just elite. I mean, he is, he's getting upticks in his, his velocity across the board, his changeup and his slider are both the best secondary pitches in all of baseball. Um, I do agree with you hundred percent that Pedro was the fiercest competitor and the toughest um, pitcher that I faced you know, consistently over the course of my career. It was always a battle. It was always, um, you know, a game where you knew that he could, you know, strike out 14 and shut you out. Um, and that now, I think, is is what people are coming to believe about DeGrom. Anytime he walks out there, there could be something really special happening. And he continues to show how special he is. And I think the last thing about him that I think is kind of Pedro-like is, 
He feels like it, it looks to me like he takes it personal. If you get on base, he takes it personal. If you get a base hit and he really takes it personal, if you are in scoring position and he just locks it down, he gets that more focused and challenged and tough in those situations, which I think makes him um, even a, a step above in, in that elite category. Tougher at bat for Todd Zeal, Pedro Martinez or Mariano Rivera? Oh, definitely Pedro for me. Uh, Mariano, um, I, I respect and know how tough he was. I happen to have good success against him. Maybe it was the fact that I, I knew I could eliminate any, any secondary pitch, obviously one pitch guy. And I tried to use right field against him. And I always thought it was an interesting uh, quandary and mistake a lot of times for managers to run up left-handed pinch hitters against him because Mariano would just that be cutter go right into salivating, him, just be salivating against the lefty. Yeah, bring them all up. I'm going to just break their bat and, you know, send you home with some pile of uh, firewood. Um, so I thought he was actually easier on a right-hander, especially a right-hander like myself that liked to look to the middle of the field and to right field. And that's where I was able to get, you know, a fair amount of success against him. In many ways, Todd, you go back six, seven years ago, what DeGrom is doing is what a whole lot of Mets fans believe Matt Harvey was going to do. I mean, Matt Harvey came to the team, was not accepting of the losing, started the All-Star game. I remember the game against Strasburg, the Harvey's better chance. And I know it ended terribly here. And I know it's been a rough go of him, you know, the last couple of years. I hope he gets cheered. I think he deserves it. I mean, you think about 2015 and the warrior he was against Kansas City in the World Series. What we're seeing out of Harvey right now in Baltimore, he's pitched well. I mean, he had a really good start against the Yankees a few weeks back. Is that sustainable in your eyes, or is he kind of just taking advantage of April, it's cold, a whole lot of lineups are struggling? What do you think about Harvey the rest of this year? You know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a better um, judgment of that after I see him, you know, for an actual start. I've only seen bits and pieces of what he's done. I think certainly it's sustainable for a guy to modify – um, their approach and their repertoire, learn to pitch a little bit better, um, work on um, off-speed and um, off-balance approach as opposed to trying to be a power guy. And I think that's been an adjustment he's had to make. Um, I, you know, the injuries obviously have been setbacks for him. Um, the thing, you know, it didn't, it didn't end here the way he would have liked it. But having said that, I wouldn't expect anything but, you know, some adulation from the fans. I don't think there's anything that they need to hold a grudge against Harvey for. I think he'll get um, cheered when he comes in here, and then they're going to want to see uh, the Mets team take it to him. But, um, look, there's been plenty of guys that have had to adjust their style to continue to have success. Um, there's no reason to think that he can't. He certainly is determined. He's certainly shown that he's persevering and seems to have changed his sort of um, outlook uh, on the type of pitcher that he is and can be to be successful. So, um, you know, nothing's impossible in that, in that regard. Your career with the Mets was the most electric moment for you being a part of the first Subway Series basically in 45 years? I'd say number two. That's number two. I think 9-11 um, and the, uh, the, the home run against Atlanta and Mike and um, just that whole experience probably just slightly, um, I think, you know, outdid the the 2000 World Series. I mean, there was an amazing buzz in the city uh, during uh, the Subway Series. I had success. I loved it. I loved every second of it. I, I was very cognizant of the fact that this may be my only chance 
to play in something like this. So I really did take it in, didn't let it escape me. So from a lot of those reasons, it's really, really special. But being a part of the city and just being a part of that whole family feeling in going down to ground zero, dealing with families, dealing with the first responders, uh, befriending a lot of people during that time and watching sort of the unity um, during and after 9-11, I think that moment culminated with on the field, probably the most special moment that I'll ever, you know, experience. Going to the ballpark that day, Todd, did it feel like the most felt strange, different. surreal, of, you know, event you've ever had to deal with in your years of playing? Yeah, yeah, it felt different. I mean, there was security like we've never seen before. There's, um, you know, this trepidation of, um, you know, whether or not uh, anybody was going to come or they're going to feel comfortable coming uh, to the to the stands and and. There was, you know, we had taken, we hadn't played, um, you know, consistently over that previous 10 days. Um, so it was de- very different, felt very different. I mean, when you when walk into the clubhouse and Rudy Giuliani standing in there, you know, it's going to be a different uh, kind of day. But um, as we got on the field, as we saw uh, the first responders lining up prior to the game, as we took the field and then acknowledged the Braves on the other side of the diamond with um, emotion in their eyes, just as it was in ours. Um, we knew that this was not just a baseball game and this was not a rivalry. This was a little bigger than that. And so, um, I think the way things transpired were almost scripted. Going back to last year, Todd, I'm watching all sorts of old games when there was the shutdown for two or three months. And I stumble upon game five, 96 ALCS. You're playing for the Baltimore Orioles against the Yankees. And you had a great series, might I add. You had great yeah. numbers against the Yankees in 96 and 2000 in the World Series. It's crazy to think about the fact that you were on three different teams and played the Yankees in uh, those years in which they couldn't lose. 96, 98, 99, 2000. Like, when you think about teams you hated over the years, those dynasty Yankees got to top the list, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, I told Joe, um, Tory that, you know, uh, the mistake that he's made in – the other years that he got to the dance was he didn't have to beat me to get there because <laughs> all those those same four years that you just mentioned right there all were years that ended up with uh, Yankee rings. So um, I told Joe that the four rings on his hand, uh, you know, he can give me a little tip of the hat because they had to go by way of uh, TZ to, to get there. And we've been friends, obviously, and, and very close for a long time. So. I figured he at least owed me a little uh, wink or nod in his uh, induction speech. You mentioned that relationship with Joe Torre, and when you made the transition behind the plate to play in a corner infield spot, what's the biggest piece of advice he gave you as you were going through all that? Um, you know what? he His role in that was more to settle me down from being really upset of being moved from behind the plate. I had caught all my life. Um, and it really was not about the transition defensively. It was about me saying, I've been a catcher all my life. I come up, I'm a good offensive catcher. That's a premium position. You stick me at third base. And now all of a sudden I've got to be a different kind of hitter to be uh, comparable to the Matt Williams, um, and Dean Palmers and the guys that were 30 home run guys. And, um, he said, have confidence in your offense. We want you, um, in, you know, in the lineup every day. Uh, we want you in RBI uh, spots and you're athletic enough to make the transition. If I did it, you can do it. And, um, you know, that was kind of the, the messaging that, that he gave me. And 
look, we locked horns a lot in my first year um, with him as manager uh, because of that transition, but we became, you know, close, close, close. And he's like, you know, a, a surrogate father to me. So it comes full circle for you. You have this playing career. Now you've been a broadcaster the last couple of years. How has that overall transition been? Been enjoyable? It's been good. Yeah. I, you know, what? when I first retired, um, I was um, asked to do some ESPN and did some Fox games um, and thought it was something that was interesting to me. And then um, I took sort of a left turn away from the game, got into some other things, kind of worked on um, home life and those types of things and kind of really distanced myself for a while. So as I started to get an opportunity to get back in here and get my, you know, kind of get my toe wet, uh, doing some, you know, a few appearances here and there. And then the more I've done, the more I've enjoyed. And, you know, we see each other around the studio now. I, I, I really do enjoy it. And one of the things that I actually love about this probably more than I liked any of the other work that I did, whether it be with MLB or Fox is the Mets have always been sort of family to me. And I like the fact that I can concentrate on the Mets and not necessarily have to know all of the ins and outs and the nuances of every other club and who they've got in double A coming up and who the pitcher was last Thursday. And um, it gives me a little bit um, more latitude to just focus on this team, which I really enjoy. And then I think do a better job of analyzing them um, as opposed to just kind of scratching the surface across, you know, the whole league. Final one. And I got a kick out of this, Todd, when I, figured out this fun little fact because I didn't realize it. Uh -oh. We had known each other and I'm into the show and you know, you don't think of anything when you're watching credits. I'm watching This Is Us and I see your daughter's name and I see Zeal and I'm like, any relation there? I, I Googled it and then sure enough, I find out that your daughter is one of the rock stars on the mega hit on NBC that everybody's watching. Kate and I are crying when we watch it every Tuesday. That's got to be a cool, proud papa type of moment, dude. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's great for her. It's something that she, um, you know, honestly um, got herself tied in with her agent, got the audition and really nailed it and has put her, you know, sort of heart and soul into it. So um, kudos to her. A lot of hard work. She loves it. Um, she loves the the people that she works with. And um you know, uh, she's a, she's a busy girl. I wish I had an opportunity to spend more time with her, uh, but certainly um, something that she is uh, um, loving and proud to be a part of. Hollywood Zeal, appreciate a couple of minutes. And the next time I see you, I think our buddy Anthony might have a couple of beverages lined up at Givers and Takers in Brooklyn. We may have to set that up, Don. He's well, paying. We better see some live. We better see some live music then, if that's the case. I like the sound of that. Thanks for a couple of minutes, man. Keep killing it. Keep up the good work. All right. Right on. Anytime, DJ. There you have it. That's a great Todd Zeal. A lot more reaction to a busy night. New York, New York, right here on the Ringer Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on Cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Great catching up with my buddy Todd Zeal. And I wouldn't be concerned about 
the lingering effects of what's going on between Lindor and McNeil, because look at what you're seeing on the field with the New York Mets, who win yet again in dramatic fashion, this time against the Baltimore Orioles, rallying from one down the bottom half of the ninth inning, scoring two. They've now won six consecutive games. And this game, in many ways, you feel like you got away with one. You got away with one because the Met offense didn't show up for eight innings in this game. You have the sequence in the top half of the seventh inning, which is going to be something the National League fan drools all over. The scenarios regarding John Means and whether or not you're going to pinch hit for him. Then how you handle Marcus Stroman. And listen, Louis Rojas made his decision. One, by the way, that I did not agree with in yanking Marcus Stroman out of the game and turning it over to Aaron Loop. But a lot of people are going to get wrapped up in, you know, the decision-making there, the back and forth with that National League way of thinking. But I would have came on here, the Mets lose this game 2-1, to one, the story would have been they can't hit. And when they get first and second with nobody out and James McCann cannot lay a bunt down and James McCann ends up striking out, he has been dreadful. I mean, a lot of people are going to talk about Lindor and I understand why because of what he's making and because he is, you know, the billboard in many ways. McCann was a significant free agent signing. The guy's got a 496 OPS and he's hitting 200. He has been putrid. Putrid a month and a half into the year. Let's pick him up, though. It's all about Pilar and Vilar getting it going. Dom Smith bloops one in. Good base running. And then... Pat Mazika, for the second time in a couple of days, walks it off on a fielder's choice. I mean, that is ridiculous. He's taking the shirt off. He's got like the dad bod flex. God bless. God bless. Not many guys can say they've walked it off twice in like five days without getting a base hit. Good for him. He's the king of the fielder's choice. And the Mets are going to win games and he's going to have walk-off fielders' choices. They're gladly going to take it. Mets playing some good baseball. Despite the fact that they are not scoring runs and that they have not figured it out offensively, six in a row is six in a row. And the common theme between the Yankees and the Mets winning games right now is that they're getting high-quality starting pitching and their bullpen is finding ways to do the job. That's how they're finding ways to win. So you had all that going on with the baseball. The Nets end up winning a game tonight. The story of this game, though, is Kyrie Irving and getting whacked in the face. And don't be surprised if Kyrie Irving pulls out the Batman mask that he had, uh, what was it, with Cleveland a couple of years ago? I think I went to a game at Madison Square Garden where he was rocking it. He scored like 45, 50 points and was on another planet. Nets had a big lead. They let Chicago get back in the game. But a win is a win, 115 to 107, as they move closer to solidifying that number two seed. And trust me, you want that two seed because Boston looks cooked. I don't believe in Charlotte or Indiana. Washington's actually playing the best out of any of those teams. But I will take any of those four in the lower half of the playing bracket. Whatever the hell you want to call it. As opposed to playing Miami, Atlanta, or the Knicks. That's just me. That's just me. And the Nets right now, a full game up on Milwaukee. And remember, Milwaukee has a tiebreaker. So Brooklyn's still got to win a couple of these games. Spurs, 
Bulls, Cavs. I'm not messing around. I'm finding a way to win all three. Now it is time to hit the horn. Late night listener voicemails. You never know where it's going to take us. You never know how crazy it's going to get. So let's fire away. What's up, JJ? It's Jordan from Mountain Lakes, New Jersey. It's 11 p.m. here on Tuesday night, and I haven't sat down since the end of the game. There's something in the air. It's a new wave mess. In years past, I would have been in bed fast asleep knowing that this game was over from the get-go. But I couldn't go to bed. I just couldn't close my eyes. No matter how long this game went on, it was not over. Mazika, whatever his name is, comes back in, and we win it. Six in a row, JJ. What do you got to say about that? What's next for this team? Tell me it all. Love you, kid. Somebody is fired up about his match. Good for him. Listen, when you win six games in a row, enjoy it. It doesn't have to be pretty, even if rats and raccoons are involved and there are brouhaha's involved and you may not be scoring a whole lot of runs. Take them and run. No pun intended. Take them and run. For Mazika to have two walk-offs without getting a base hit, it's, it's absolute insanity. But don't apologize. A win is a win. And when you're down one in the bottom half of the ninth inning, I don't care who the opponent may be. You take that win, you feel good about it. You might have some trouble going to sleep tonight. That's okay. Welcome to my world. Who's up next? Yo, John, it's Kevin and Copay. I got a trade for you, man. This is serious. J.D. Davis for Miguel and Duhar. Don't pull my leg, man. They say they both can't play defense. I want to hear what you have to say. I miss you, man, on the fans. Let's go, man. Well, I love you, Kevin and Copay, one of the all-time greats. I don't get why that trade would make sense for either team right now. What good does J.D. Davis do the Yankees? What, do you put him in the corner outfield? You're going to take time away from Clint Frazier? The Yankees have a third baseman. His name is Gio Urshela. And if the Yankees are going to be in the market for an outfielder, they need a left-handed hitting outfielder. And Duhar, on the other hand, what good does he do the New York Mets? He can't play defense. Now, Miguel Andujar is not going to have a role on this Yankee team. And I like his bat, and I think it could play in the big leagues. In fact, I know it can play in the big leagues because we've seen it. 2018, he should have won the Rookie of the Year over Shohei Otani. The only reason they gave Otani the Rookie of the Year because it was a novelty act. The whole idea of him hitting and pitching, even though he missed like three and a half months that year. And Andujar raked in 2018. He's fallen on some hard time, bad luck. And the fact that he's a bad defensive player. But for the Mets, they're looking to get better defensively at third base. He doesn't fit in either. So, no. Kevin, I love you. I don't see how that quote-unquote fantasy trade, proposed trade, makes a whole lot of sense for anybody. So, in that regard, you kind of over to. Who's up next? Hey, John. It's Winston Yorkville. A very, very important question. Assuming that the Yankees stay in the hunt, they wild card hunt, Okay, would you trade a top asset, a Gleyber Torres, an Aaron Judge even, for Mr. Max Scherzer? They need more horses, okay? Let me know what you think. At this point in time, starting pitching is not the problem for the New York Yankees. Now, would I be intrigued by Max Scherzer? Of course. The guy is a beast. The guy is one of the best pitchers in all of baseball. And a one-two punch in a short series with Garrett Cole and Max Scherzer is... 
something I would drool and fantasize over. The Nationals are going to have no interest in Aaron Judge, nor are the Yankees trading Aaron Judge. Not worth discussing. Gleyber Torres is a shortstop. So who are the Yankees getting to play shortstop if you move Gleyber Torres? You are trading younger players, guys that are not major leaguers. Like, think about Dominguez. That's the sort of guy you are trading if you're getting Scherzer or other top prospects. I don't know. Maybe it's a a, a Garcia, a Schmidt. It's an Andahar. It's like a cast of thousands. I, I'm just throwing out names. I'm not saying that's a fair trade, by the way, before I get roasted on social media. I'm just kind of thinking aloud. Yankees are not going to compromise their team. Their everyday team to go and get a guy like Scherzer who's a free agent at the end of the year? No, they're not going to do that. And at this point, as much as I want the guy, Pitching has been fine. Look at Montgomery. Look at Herman. Look at Kluber. Tyon's done a job. And you're getting Luis Severino back. Yankees need a bat right now more than they need an arm. Can't believe I'm saying that, but it's true. Who's up next? Hey, JJ. This is Levi from West Orange. I just want to tell you that your uh, your employer over there, Mr. Simmons, is full of crap. I'm listening to his podcast. He starts. He just totally goes over the fact that Nick's just beat a bona fide championship team in the Los Angeles Clippers and beat him good. Came back multiple times, a lot of adversity. And just constant disrespect, both from Mr. Simmons and from the general uh, NBA elite about the Knicks and their ability. All we get is how this team can't go far. This team can't win. Guess what? We're just going to keep on winning games, man. We're going to get to 40 wins this year. 40 wins in a 72-game season. Guess what? Then we're going to go play the Hawks. We'll play the Heat. I don't care. We're going to beat them. And guess what? That round two matchup, I know everyone likes to say, oh, it's a foregone conclusion. We're going to get this team and that team. Knicks will give you a run for the money. Knicks have given the Bucks a run for the money this year. If it's going to be a Sixers, Knicks have given the Sixers a run for the money this year. Hell, if it's Nets, we're going to give them a shot. But I'm sick of this, you know, this attitude towards our Knicks. Of, oh, they're just going to lose. Oh, their ceiling. No, their ceiling is, the, is as far up as they want it to be. They're a very talented uh, basketball team. Everyone on the team is playing well. D-Rose is back to MVP levels. Let's see where they can take it. And tell Mr. Simmons next time he wants to roll over us, just go check the standings, see where the Celtics are. I love the shit talking at the expense of my boss, who right now does not have a basketball team that he can be proud of. On the other hand, we have a basketball team in the Knickerbockers that you can be very, very proud of. Now, I'm not delusional. I don't think they're beating one of those big three opponents, meaning Philadelphia, Brooklyn, or Milwaukee. And that's why I think it's super imperative to go and get in that 4-5 matchup because I want a day to dream. But this is a house money year for the Knicks. They've had a terrific regular season. This is a tough one tonight. This is a winnable game. Game Nick could have had. It was ugly. It was down at a wire. Randall, Rose didn't get enough help. Not enough shooting. Sign me up for Atlanta in the first round. And even though I wouldn't like their chances with Miami, I'll take Miami over those big three any day of the week. Last but not least, who's on the horn? Hey, JJ. It's Gary from West Hempstead. First time caller. Love the podcast. It's way better than any of the New York radio shows. So keep up the good work. Huge Knicks fan. And I wanted to get your opinion on, do we root for the Hawks now to start winning? You know, we don't want to get too greedy. We could still get the sixth seed, but I, we really don't want to face Miami. We'd much rather face the Hawks, even as a five seed, versus Miami as the four seed. So just want to get your thoughts on that. Go to New York, New York. And could we please get Mike and Bill on a podcast together? Thank you. I will be working on that. I can't tell you when it's going to be, but there may be a meeting of the minds between myself, Simmons, and Francesca. You'll, you'll have to wait and see. I won't be able to speak much, 
Bill won't be able to speak much, but that will happen at some point. I can guarantee it. It will happen. Um, I don't think you can be focused on Atlanta, Miami yet. The Knicks have to lock up that 4-5, first and foremost. Yeah, I would say you're rooting Knicks. You're rooting Hawks. You're probably rooting against the Heat the next few days. But you don't want to be in a situation where Miami and Atlanta are both ahead of you. So the first order of business before we're talking about anything is the Knickerbockers doing what they need to do, which is winning minimum two of the next three games. Because Atlanta's got a cupcake schedule. Miami has a tougher schedule. I think two of the next three gets the Knicks in the 4-5 matchup. We'll have to wait and see. So coming up next, a guy who is a longtime friend of mine, the founder of Spread Investor, NBA, NFL handicapper, and a big-time New York Knickerbocker fan, James Alberino from SpreadInvestor.com. He's up next. This episode is brought to you by 7-Eleven. Cold, slurpy drinks and a hot summer day are a match made in heaven, and your favorite refreshment just got even better. Let's talk about 7-Eleven's $1 small slurpy drink with seven rewards. It's the classic frozen fizzy treat you can't get anywhere else. I'm a blue raspberry guy. Just know that about me. Know that I'm going to be going forward. Anytime there's a drink like this, I'm in on the blue raspberry. If you're feeling thirsty, feeling thirsty right now, how about going to visit a 7-Eleven valid through 1725? 7-Eleven has the right to end this promotion early, plus tax, participating U.S. stores. See app for full terms. All rights reserved. Let's welcome in one of my all-time favorite people. We had old John's Pizza earlier in the day. He's back in town. It's like the return of the king. The, the welcoming party is out for one of my favorite JJ After Dark guests who's making his New York, New York debut. James Alberino, the founder of Spread Investor. And I think the Knicks being over 500, even after a tough loss, James, that's keeping you up late night, is why uh, you've made your return to the Big Apple, my friend. What's happening, bro? Well, when was the last time we had a game where it's 1.30 right now on the East Coast and we had this much adrenaline and energy running from a Knicks game? It, this, look, tough loss tonight. The, the way that they played, though, taking this game to overtime and a game that the Lakers need, th this was something that it's just not – it hasn't been had in this city. So when, when – even with a loss – you look at the way they played. You look at the way they responded. There were a couple times in this game they could have went down by double digits, and they came back and they tied the game. So, look, chalk it up. Tough one tonight, but three games towards the end of the schedule, and I think we'll go at least two and one down the stretch. Well, James, let's be honest, dude. Even in the overtime session, all right, they don't box out. Matthews gets the rebound. You end up going to overtime. When the Knicks fall behind by, like, five points – that's what I'm thinking. All right, this is going to be a double-digit Laker win. They're going to run and hide. And when Rose goes through that sequence, dude, where he hits the three, draws the offensive foul, then Randall bangs the three, and you got a one-point lead, and then they force another turnover. See, dude, that was when, once again, I kind of got suckered into thinking tonight, it's going to be a magical night, man. This is going to be the night they clinch the playoff spot, big win, not only getting the Clippers on Sunday, but getting the Lakers tonight. That sequence there I thought was going to be game, set, match, but the Lakers, to their credit, man, made some big plays. Well, for most games this season, the Knicks have made big plays late in games, 
and more times than not, they've finished it and they've come on the winning side of games more than the losing side. Tonight just happened to be one of those where you have a big three-pointer just hit right in your face. That steal from Derrick Rose tonight when he went from behind and, and just stole that ball, that was it, it was just such a, a big play. And, and the two threes back-to-back, Rose and Randall, at the very least, you look at this team, you look at even in fourth-quarter situations, they're going to compete in the playoffs. They just need to lock up. They need to stay in this four or five slot because the Heat are making a really strong push. 10 of 13. They're looking really good. Ariza is helping them a lot more than a lot of people expected. And if the Knicks fall to six, that can be slippery. Obviously, they'll be they'll play the Bucks most likely. But um this weekend, this is this is a five, six day stretch in, in Manhattan that's gonna be big. James, they got to win games, bro. Listen, I want to be in that 4-5 because as fun as this year has been, it's been a feel-good ride. To me, Tibbs is coach of the year. Randall, to me, is the most improved player. All true. I want to have a legitimate chance for our beloved basketball team to go and win in the first round. And I got to be real. They're matching up with Brooklyn or they're matching up with Milwaukee. They're going to be a sizable underdog. And I know some are going to say, oh, JJ, that's a loser's mentality. It's defeatist. It was bullshit. The hell with that. I want to see the Knicks taking me on a ride. You know, I want to see them take me through a couple weeks of this postseason. Would you say at this point, the best case scenario for them first round is a matchup with the Atlanta Hawks? Yeah, I think so. They've beaten them already three times this season. And you don't want to face the heat over the Hawks. The Heat is a good matchup for the Knicks. I think Trey Young is a defensive liability in a matchup versus the Knicks because you could put Randall in pick and rolls, get him switched on to Trey Young. That's not a matchup that the Hawks can handle. They'll have to double Julius Randall. And Julius takes over game. He's taken over so many games, even tonight. He played unbelievable. The Knicks going to the next level. Slight, you talk about slight adjustments because they're playing really well. To go from playing really well to great, that slight adjustment is if Randall starts making that pass as he's anticipating a double team and he starts swinging the ball around and the Knicks start moving the Had ball. Had a couple opportunities today, James. Good point, including that travel that ended up killing at, at the, the game. At the end of the game, exactly. And, and, and that, that possession late where the Knicks had a, a shot clock violation. He waited way too long. And look, I, I even said, I texted you right before that. I said the ball in Randall's hands, no matter what in this possession. But if you've got eight, nine seconds left on the shot clock and you can either anticipate or you see a double team coming, you have to get rid of the ball, swing it to the opposite side. If he starts doing that, that can make a difference of, of a win or a loss as the margins get smaller and smaller versus better competition. You're a guy who's made his bones getting into the dark side, as I like to call it. I'm rewatching the OC. So when Ryan Atwood walks into the party in Newport and he says, oh, baby, welcome to the dark side. That's me walking in with James to the Cosmopolitan late night when I'm seeing the cracks tables hopping, the book is hopping. Welcome to the dark side indeed. So for anybody who's wondering about the dark side with these series prices, James, if we get the Knicks and Atlanta, let's say, I was asked this question by Andrew and Bay Ridge. He called the show just a few days ago. I think I said minus 120 because I think the Knicks will get a little bit of juice. I think it could vary, obviously, depending on home court advantage. 
But are we looking at Knicks Hawks if indeed that's the series? It's basically a coin flip type deal. I would give the nod to the Knicks, not in a necessarily coin flip, but I think you're pretty spot on with minus 120. You could see minus 115, minus 120, depending on the book. I think it could get up to minus 125 because you're going to attract Knicks money. Look, even tonight with the loss, they covered tonight. They closed at plus three, no matter what you got them at. They opened at plus five and a half. When Wojnarowski tweeted that LeBron's not playing tonight, that dropped to three, three still covered. 17 and three against the spread run. People have been betting this. We've been betting this. Average people who bet across the country who are not Knicks fans have been betting this. So I think you're definitely going to track Knicks money. It's going to be a big storyline with the media. ESPN will cover. There will be a lot of conversation. The Knicks haven't gone to the playoffs since 2003. This will be a very big thing, especially that Manhattan in Midtown outside of Mount Madison Square Garden is pretty much dead or very different at the least. This is going to be a very big storyline. So that's going to pull in more public money, and that's definitely going to have a, a, a factor into where the price is going to land. Okay. Milwaukee, Brooklyn, Philly. If the Knicks match up with any of those three, whether it's in the first round or the second round, I don't think they're beating any of those three, full disclosure. But who in your eyes do they have the best chance of competing and going mano a mano against which one of those teams? Milwaukee. I agree. I think it's Milwaukee by a mile. Because Brooklyn's got too much firepower. And Philadelphia, to me, with that coach, with the way Embiid is going, and the way they can play defense, I don't want to play them. I'll take a team that hasn't won squat in the playoffs and might be in their head if you play a tight competitive series. Thank you. Thibodeau and, and the Knicks defense would make it difficult on the Bucks, more difficult on them three-point-wise. Knicks will be able to compete with them for the most part rebounding-wise. I think that would be you, – you'll definitely get at least one Knicks win if, if it is Knicks-Bucks. I think they would be competitive in every single game. If there's more than one game in that series that the Bucks win by double digits, I would be very surprised. Uh, and if the Knicks – did force a six game, a game six, I wouldn't be completely surprised. The Knicks can compete with any team in the NBA. You know, this is this is a team that they're, they're very confident, and Julius Randle is the best player on a lot of courts, and, and that's prepared them for upper-level competition. So I think they could build a wall and, and limit Giannis and, and do some things that the Heat did last year and other teams have done to, to frustrate Giannis in the playoffs. How are you looking to handicap the Eastern Conference right now? you think Brooklyn is a clear-cut favorite to go to the finals, or are you seeing value potentially in a Philly, a Miami, or a Milwaukee? I'm not betting against Brooklyn. With Harden, when Harden's back and they're full force, it's just going to be too tough to stop the, the three of them. And I think they're a better defensive team than the numbers say. Continuity is definitely a, a tricky thing. But if you get the Nets in a favorable matchup in the first round and they're full, full strength, they go through a four or five game series. That jump starts chemistry. And the Lakers were a pretty 
brand new team and a lot of new pieces last year in the bubble when they made that run and that first round and second round got them chemistry. I think that's kind of a similar situation to the, what the Nets are going through this year. So I think they can overcome it the way that LA did last year. Um, I, I wouldn't bet against them, but this is going to be one of the best Eastern conference playoffs in a really long time. This is a lot of competition at the top half of it. And James, think about this for a minute. The Lakers, they might be in the plan. Maybe this win against the Knicks pushes them out of the plan. No matter where they are, they're the seventh seed in the plan or they're the sixth seed. Bro, you and I both know when you go back to Vegas in a week, everybody and their mother is lining up and betting the Lakers to win yep. the NBA title, dude. You know that's yep. you know that's going down. And what I'm trying to figure out, and I don't have an answer. It's amazing. We're a week outside of the playoffs starting. And I'm trying to find the team I like in the Western Conference. Are you buying Phoenix? Are you in on Utah? Like right now, I think it's very, very up in the air. And maybe in a week, I'll have a little clarity. I'll have a come to Jesus moment. I ain't there yet. Do you have a team that you're kind of buying out West? Well, the, the Jazz right now and without Mitchell, tough situation. Phoenix, if Phoenix had more front court depth and their backup big off the bench with somebody other than Frank Kaminsky, I would say Phoenix should win, could win out in the Western Conference and and match up with the Lakers. The problem is the Lakers have so much size that when LeBron is back, Schroeder's healthy, when, when they do have the guard play that they're used to, and then they come at you with Anthony Davis, Andre Drummond, Montrez Harrell, Marcus Gasol, there's just so much size – and Phoenix is really DeAndre Ayton. And who do they bring off? Frank Kaminsky. It's a lot of small ball. It's a lot of great defensive team. It's taken nothing away from Phoenix. I bet Phoenix a lot this year. Great team. I, I think they'll be in the Western Conference Finals. It's going to be, can they rebound pound for pound? We're not going to be talking about the, the L.A. Lakers May 12th, May 13th version of L.A. Lakers. We're going to fast forward to June 20th. June 27th, what's that version of Lakers going to be? A lot happens in five, six weeks. Lakers get healthy. Lakers start clicking a little bit. They start building some chemistry. Very different picture. So I agree with you that this, the the panic and what's going on with the Lakers, hey, look, this playing game, everyone's complaining about it. This might be a good thing for them in, in a subtle. Can and, build some momentum, I, bro. There you Possible. go. They need yeah. They need it. LeBron's been out the 25 of the last 27 games. I think what they're saying, hey, if we do, they don't want to be in it, but if we do happen to be in it, look, are you going to put your money on the Lakers losing two out of three games versus any of these teams at a 7-10? and 10? I don't think so. So their mentality is, hey, all right, who's up next? Jazz or Phoenix? We could be both of them. So that's what's going to make these playoffs so funny and – we're going to look – a lot of people are going to look back at these playoffs in five and ten years, and it's going to be, oh, yeah, that was the COVID season when the Lakers were in the sixth seed or the seventh seed. And, oh, yeah, it was 72 games, not 82. And, yeah, they were playing seven games in 11 or 12 days. And this is just something that's historic, and it's going to be like the lockout year. You have 56 games and all that. This is just one of those rare, unique situations, and – I don't even think a lot of people are realizing it in the moment, but that's what's going on right now. It's a great point. And, dude, think about this, man. You've been with me going back to the old gig in 2016. Yep. It's now 20, 
21 and we're breaking all this stuff down and think about the perception of the wagering business here on whatever today is. What is it now? May the 12th mm-hmm. to what it was on May the 12th, 2016, dude. If we were having this segment in 2016, people would think we're like the underground, dude, that we're like the bootleggers, bro, that we are like uh, doing it out of a speakeasy or whatever. (laughs) Are you, as a guy, James, that's been at this now for a long time, are you in love with the way the mainstream sports media has embraced sports gambling? Or is it still kind of a bunch of guys and gals maybe who don't know what they're doing, dipping their toes into the sports gambling medium? Like, how do you kind of evaluate where... This crazy world has taken us over the last six years. I love everything about the awareness of this industry and that sports betting is getting recognized for what it is. Something that, for the most part, a lot of people use as a form of entertainment. Hey, maybe you make a little bit of money on the side, but at the very least, I can be entertained for the game. And if I lost 50 bucks, okay, you know, what's a movie ticket normally? Have? You know, it's in, in New York City, you're paying, you know, what, 21 bucks at this point. That's how $11 popcorn. Don't get me started. <laughs> yeah. Don't get me started. Well, that's one benefit of, of being in quarantine. You just watch Netflix all day and, and, you, and you just keep going from there. But the other side of it, uh, I, I think because it's so new, you have a lot of new players and a lot of new brands in the market. It is the wild, wild west right now. You do have a lot of people that are crossing over into the betting industry. They've never truly bet before this. And a lot of people on the fly learning. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think a lot of really talented, really skilled people have come out of that. I think a lot of people are learning some things the hard way, uh, but that's just natural. I, you know, for me to say, and for other guys, other guys who do this for a living to say that they didn't learn things along the way, that would be a lie. Um, it's just, you know, look, me and you have been betting before the days that the government said it was okay to bet. You know, we didn't need uh, Governor Christie in New Jersey and the the federal and, and Supreme Court and, and everybody in this country to say, okay, hey, sports betting is going to get legalized for us to say, yeah, we're going to bet. We're betting a long time. So um, there's just difference in, you know, people will get more and more experienced. And this industry is not even close to being shaped in the way that it will be. There's a long way to go. And it's going to get better, in my opinion, because I think you're going to get more and more educated people. And this is very similar to poker. Hey, 2005, the 2000s, when you turned on ESPN, you saw the World Series of Poker all the time. No one turned on the World Series of Poker and said, oh, look at these degenerates. It was, wow, this guy's really good. This guy's raking in money. This guy's putting on his W-2s that he's a professional poker player. That is sports betting in 2020. Only difference is we're not sitting at a table. You're staring at a television and you're evaluating the betting market similar to a stock market, only on a shortened time span. And you're finding your edges and your angles and and you're making wagers from there. What's the biggest piece of advice you give to someone right now who is a novice? Not somebody who's looking to make it in sports betting necessarily, James, but somebody who's, you know, a Saturday night, Sunday NFL guy. They want to bet six, seven games, let's say. Have some fun, have a few beers, have a few laughs. What would be the biggest piece of advice you would give them as far as dealing and tackling handicapping sports? Figure out what your goal is. Do you want it for entertainment or do you want it for profit? A lot of guys say they want it for entertainment. They run themselves into trouble. Realize that it, it this should be a way that you can make some side cash and, and some money, but 
it can get like a video game feel where you ever stay up late at night and you know when you're when you're in your teenage i mean i haven't played video games in a long time man. i don't know oh, this was me during quarantine but, by like, the way. playing mlb until four in the morning there was nothing to do college if we're talking like playing like gta like staying up like we're talking then yes but you I were a gta guy i didn't know I, that I was a big gta very guy. Nice. Hey, very nice call of duty vice city vice city by the way Vice City? City uh, San Andreas. Soundtrack for Vice City, by the way, is fire. They're, Boy Caliente, as they say, James. A lot, a lot of classics on there, but I, I haven't touched a remote con- – I haven't touched a gaming system uh, in, in, in a long time. But it, it gets – if you're if you're a new gambler, I don't think a lot of people realize it. You stay up. You keep, you know, you keep playing the game. That's how sports betting can – get if you're not conscious of it so just have a set amount of money on on the side that you're going to bet with take a thousand dollars take fifteen hundred dollars and say okay over this next two month period one month period this is what i'm allocating this is what i'm putting aside for betting don't just play it as it goes don't treat it like you're in vegas for the weekend or you're at the borgata for the weekend and all right i'm down 400 and then now i'm going to chase it do not accept that you're supposed to lose you hit 60% in this game, that's like batting 330. So when you lose, it can't be, ah, this, you know, every game law, you're supposed to lose. There's ground outs in baseball, there's sack flat. That's exactly the game. Poker players don't win every single hand. So to turn a really long answer into a short one, um, have the mentality of accepting the ups and, and the downs. That's just normal. More surprising to you seeing a NFL football team in Las Vegas? Is it more surprising seeing the bottom line on all of these professional channels now, the MLB Network, ESPN, showing you the point spreads on these individual games? I don't know, James, because honestly, dude, I never thought we'd live in a world where we'd actually see this. I'm grateful that we do live in that world. I also thought it was so taboo, they said a decade ago. Oh, you could... You could never have a team in Las Vegas. What a well, what about the integrity of the games? James, we might have three teams in Las Vegas if the Oakland A's go there. So it just goes to show you that narrative was a bunch of bullshit. So I don't know what I'm more surprised by. I, I'll throw it to you, though. I guess I would say the bottom line with these leagues because I thought these leagues would never buy into it. Never. I'm not surprised by either, to be honest. And I, look, I, I'll say that from a, a unique vantage point that if I – didn't believe that sports betting was going to get legalized. My life and my income would be very different. Your I, career might have taken you a different path, my friend. I, I can understand that. I'm, That's do, fair. I'm doing this now since 2014 publicly. Like I wouldn't have started doing that publicly and risked what I was risking at that time and my reputation, everything, if there wasn't a path for legalization. Governor Christie, Jersey, they were lobbying for this since 2012. So I guess for the last nine, 10 years, I knew this was going to happen in terms of legalization aspect. And in terms of having a, a team in Vegas, I mean, look, again, you say we've we've taken trips to Vegas. You've been in Vegas with me. What is so bad about having a football team in Los No, it's the best. What are Vegas they going to do? the best. Think about this. If you're a fan of the Jets or myself, the Miami Dolphins, when the NFL schedule comes out tomorrow and my team is going to Las Vegas, you think I'm more likely to go to Oakland or you think I'm more likely to go to Vegas? And I'm not looking to shit on Oakland. I'm just telling you, Vegas and the NFL is a match made in heaven. 
it look, just really is. I'll say this from firsthand experience to spent the last 14 months out in Vegas and in uh, a football season, NFL season where fans weren't allowed it. People love the Ra- people go crazy over the Raiders in Vegas. People go crazy over the Golden Knights too. So it's great for Vegas. And then you have tourists, you have people that come to Vegas four or five times a year. If they don't necessarily have a football team, they become fans of the Raiders. So it it's great for the league. And like, what what is bad about having a professional team? What the city's going to make more money? Like, what what was the worst thing that's going to happen? Like. Well, oh, oh, players are going to they're going to bet on on games because they're in close proximity to a casino. Brother, they could bet illegally anytime, anywhere that they want. Well, dude, how about New Orleans? Like, you go to the Harris, bro. I don't know the state of Louisiana and yeah. the legalization issues, but I mean, dude, you can find trouble anywhere. The point being is, bro, you can find trouble anywhere. Yep. When are we getting to the Grayson and hooting and hollering over a Nick game? Uh, let's set the line right now for the audience. By the way, James and I, James, share with the audience. Look, we have ventured to this bar on the Lower East Side quite a few times over the years. We celebrated a late night Monday night Chiefs Broncos game. I don't even remember what we bet, dude, but we won it late. I remember we were going nuts. But the Eagle run with Nick Foles to the Super Bowl, dude, we cleaned that place out, bro. We were dancing that night. We were dancing. Now, I have to make a disclaimer because you live in New York, but you're a Miami Dolphins fan. That's right. True story. Boisterous Miami Dolphins fan. True story. I have to make a disclaimer that I am a born New Yorker. I am a big-time Giants fan. So when I say that and talk about this Eagles run, it it was difficult to actually – It was all about the Benjamins for you. It was strictly business. It was business at this point because we – that was a run where the Eagles were set to make a big Super Bowl run. And that and that Nick Foles. Dude, we were getting a plus money every fucking game. At home, this was the best. We were there for home primetime games, Saturday night, that wild card weekend. No, divisional weekend. Divisional round, yep. Eagles plus three at home versus the Falcon. Dome team playing outside, chilly in January. Like, Jay, this, this is like. This is ripe. Why? Because Nick Foles is, is the quarterback. But that was a great time. And for the people that have never been there, I don't know what the situation and setup at the Grayson since COVID is now. But, man, great wings, phenomenal brunch. If you go there, it, it gets rowdy on Sundays. I hope we can see a, a Sunday like that at some point. It almost gets a little too rowdy at points. But every touchdown in the Giants game, they're ringing the bell behind the bar. I'll be ringing the bell. I mean, if I, was I, throw a touchdown, that, I might go back there and start myself. Ringing myself. Uh, $5 shots at halftime. I went to the bathroom. I looked at Ryan Rucos right next to me. I'm like, oh, shit. Rucos. Well, I'm six drinks in at this point, but Grayson's a good spot. Um, no affiliation there with, with the plug, just a, a, a good spot. Hey, with, listen, we're trying uh, to support small business right now. Small businesses are hurting. We want uh, to get them there, of course. You don't have to worry but, about that. Uh, Come on now. But Grayson, no, uh, that that Eagles Super Bowl run and and uh, and then playing the Vikings, but um, just, yeah, good couple of good runs in, in the city, man. Nothing like those good vibes. Hopefully there's one coming with the Knicks. Don't be a stranger to this podcast, my man. Uh, what do you got to plug, by the way, before you say goodbye? I want to make sure you plug whatever you got to plug. Well, NBA is heating up. You know, obviously talk a little bit NBA, but I give out analytics, predictions, and a whole bunch of information on Twitter and 
on my website to try to help the average better. So that's what you and I have been doing for the people that haven't listened to any of our segments in the past. You know, we've done these segments since, you know, 2016, four or five in the morning when you're doing the overnights and, um, you know, that's why it comes full circle, by the way, that we had a Nick game go to overtime. It had to be late okay. night action for you, James. You no, know, it just had to be. Um, I, I'm a I'm a diehard Knicks fan and and an NBA handicapper, and uh, this is this is my livelihood. So uh, just uh, w- would love to to share in some of the Knicks run and and hopefully sharing some winners with with people in the city. Well, welcome to New York, New York. Don't be a stranger. And by the way, what's it? We giving John's on Bleaker A plus tonight. Yeah, right? I mean, that was yeah. Well, that was that was a meal. Was that a meal? Or was that a meal? Well, if yeah, if if you go by the if you go by the Portnoy. Yeah, I'm not gonna do that. He he's made enough. I don't have to worry about. He's he, he's gonna, he's I think he's doing okay. In his own class. He might but, have been staring at us, by the way, as we were eating our pizza today. I mean, geez. <laughs> They got to work on getting my picture there. Seriously. James, you're the best, bro. Appreciate it, all right? Appreciate it, man. Thank you. Always a pleasure to catch up with my good pal. We go way back to great James Alberino. I'm used to closing down the Grayson or closing down Vegas with that guy. Now we're closing down the podcast with him. And this is going to be a fun one on Thursday because we'll have all the reaction to the Yankees and the Rays. We'll have reaction to Harvey Day, of course, as now he's wearing a Baltimore Orioles jersey. But I feel Nick's seating is going to be at the highest of priorities against San Antonio, the weekend against the Hornets and the Boston Celtics. And the Knicks, at worst, are going to be the sixth seed, but you really want to be in that 4-5 or because you want to have a legitimate chance to go and win a first-round series. So we are going to be loaded. You know, Connor is going to join us. He's going to make his New York, New York debut. But before we say goodbye, how can we say goodbye without saying hello to the great Jeff Money? Hey, JJ, Jeff Money here with a handicapper picks. This is going to be for Wednesday, May the 12th. I like one game uh, for tomorrow. I like the Chicago White Sox, minus the 125 over the Twins. It'll be uh, Keiko versus Hap. Now, the pitching matchup is pretty close. I think it might come down to the bullpen where to give the edge to the White Sox. And also, the White Sox against lefties this year are 7-1. and one. So they've got a nice streak going. Let's see if they keep it going. So, again, I'm going to take the Chicago White Sox minus the 125. All right, J.J., I'm out of here. Let's go. Money, we're riding together, baby. We're riding together because there's no way in the world I'm putting my money on J.Hap. That White Sox line is working in your favor. Went from 130 to 140. I'll roll with the White Sox for you. And I think I'm going to throw in a Harvey Day play. Just because the value is too good with Baltimore. I'm seeing Baltimore right now, and I know they're a god-awful team, at plus 190, or minus 190, I should say, for the Mets. Means I'm getting the Orioles right around 165, 170. I'll take a stab. A little matinee baseball. A little Harvey Day. And a little White Sox. Jeff for you. Jeff Money. And the Yankees tomorrow... Expect a hefty line with Garrett Cole taking on Colin McHugh. One edition of New York, New York. I didn't even need coffee. Too much going on. Too much to be fired up about. We're back on Thursday. Enjoy the next 48 hours. JJ out. Be good, everybody.